A very warm welcome to all of you to the final event of this year's LSE Festival on shaping the post-COVID world. The COVID pandemic has acutely brought to the foreground very distinctive geographic, gendered and racialized inequalities that have impacted many lives. We've seen how these have drawn tighter demarcations between privileged and marginalized groups. And our festival draws on the social sciences to think through ethical and grounded directions in order to shape more just outcomes. My name is Susie Hall, and I'm the co-director of the Cities Programme at the London School of Economics and Political Science. This year, the festival has held all events online and streamed these via Zoom and the Festival Hub. So by all means, visit the festival homepage on the LSE website to access festival content, including podcasts of the live events, as well as a series of pre-recorded short talks with our LSE faculty. For the next hour, we'll be discussing the changing nature of extant inequalities in urban health and how these overlap with urban life. We'd like to explore with you how policymakers and urban health advocates plan through this turbulent period to address what it means to live well in the city, underscoring how the built environment is integral to health outcomes. I'm afraid Judith Batchelor is unable to join us today, but I'm very pleased to welcome Kieran Boyle, Chief Executive of Impact on Urban Health Charity, and Professor Tony Travers, Associate Dean of the School of Public Policy and the Director of LSE London. Kieran has worked across the public sector on exploring new models for social change, and he's engaged with questions of social investment at both national and global scales. His current work at Impact on Urban Health focuses on improving health outcomes in urban communities. Tony's research at the LSE includes public finance with respect to local and regional government and specifically London government. He's a member of the London Recovery Board that is established to coordinate London's immediate response to the epidemic, the pandemic. The format for our event today is as follows. Firstly, we're going to open with a poll asking what you see as the main determinants for urban health and healthy living. Kieran will then speak about impact on urban health and their work to explore how local, national and international collaborations can be shaped to support better health. Then we're going to launch a second poll asking about whose involvement you feel is key to making cities healthier places to live. Tony will then talk about the outcomes of a recently completed collaborative project between LSE cities and impact on urban health on scenarios for Lambeth and Southwark. The project analyzes key demographic characteristics of these boroughs, but also explores short to medium term scenarios that are designed to help shape future policy. After this, we're going to reflect on the discussion and then invite you to, to engage in questions and discussion with us. To submit a question today, please use the Q&A feature, not the chat feature, at the bottom of your screen. Please try to keep your questions short and also please tell us about your name and affiliation. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Festival. This online event is being pre-recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. Let's start now then with our first poll question. The first poll question is, which factors will increasingly determine whether we live healthy urban lives? A. Level of education. B. Level of income. C. Lifestyle. D. Local neighbourhood character. So I'd welcome you to participate in this first poll. We'd really get a sense of how you evaluate these questions. And I'll read the first question again. Which factors will increasingly determine whether we live healthy urban lives? And we're just waiting for your poll votes to come in and to get the results of our first poll. Our team in the background are quickly correlating. Please feel free to participate in the poll. 
I see we've got 156 participants today, so hopefully we should get some good outcomes. Have we got the outcomes ready to share? Ah, oh, fascinating. Okay. So 19% of you think that this is attributable to levels of education. 33% to levels of income, and you get my vote there. 18% on lifestyle and 30% on local neighborhood character. And what's terrific about this is, of course, that all of you are recognizing the profound systemic nature of this. So I'm going to close those poll results. And we are now going to go over to Kieran Bowl, who's going to speak for approximately five to 10 minutes. Kieran, welcome. Thank you, Zizi. It's a real pleasure to be with you and Tony this afternoon and everybody else is as well. Um, uh, so I'm Kieran. I'm the Chief Executive of Impact on Urban Health. Um, for British audiences, um, you probably recall the Ron Seal ads does exactly what it says on the tin. Um, and that's really what impact on urban health is. So what we do is we focus on improving health in inner city areas by trying to understand and change how inequalities impact our health. So we go about that by uh, investigating the biggest and most complex urban health challenges. And then we build long-term philanthropic programs to test and develop solutions to them. And then we try and share lessons with others around the world. So that's us is impact on, on urban health. Um, and the reason we do that is that we think that cities and the ever-changing nature of them means that they're the perfect testbed for new ideas uh, to systemic challenges. Uh, and what I imagine we'll spend most of today discussing is how systems are actually designed, which means that they can be redesigned and cities provide exciting opp opportunities to do, to do exactly that. Um, now, as Impact on Urban Health, we base all of our work in the London boroughs of Lambeth and Southwark, which Tony will be speaking about uh, later. Uh, for those people who are less familiar with them, they are some of the most uh, vibrant and diverse areas anywhere in the world. Um, they also have huge inequalities and health inequalities. So if you were to take Burgess Park, um, uh, that's their female healthy life expectancy uh, is in people's 50s. If you go to the wealthier area of Dulwich Park, their female healthy life expectancy is in people's 70s. So the thing about Lambeth and Southwark for us is that these extreme inequalities uh, are good examples of the dynamics of what's going on in cities, what needs investigating, and basically what needs shaping and reshaping. So for us, urban health really exists at the intersections of all of those different things that were put in the poll. Um, and uh, the story of COVID-19 tells that sadly all too well. So it's very clear that COVID hasn't been experienced equally. If you live in an overcrowded house, if you travel to probably multiple jobs on crowded public transport, if you have a little say over your working conditions, then your risk for the virus has been much higher. But it goes deeper than that. So your risk from COVID is higher if you live in polluted areas or if you live in neighbourhoods with few affordable healthy eating options. It's also higher if you have other long-term health conditions and you're more likely to have one of those and at an earlier age if you live in a diverse urban environment. So what the, this pandemic I think has, has shown is that it's kind of it's fast forwarded a clock on patterns that were there all along. Uh, they were less visible perhaps but had a huge human and economic cost. Um, some of the work we've been doing with LSE has been to therefore gather data and insights both within London but also from cities around the world comparable to London um, and what we've been learning from all of this work uh, uh, across cities and within London on how they're responding to COVID and responding to the pandemic is that there are of course huge cultural and political differences between places but as relates to the question of urban health two very very clear uh, and consistent themes 
um, uh, we might even call them lessons. So the first of those is that if we are to improve urban health, but really to tackle health inequalities, then we need to engage a very wide set of people, a very wide set of sectors. Um, so in our work, we collaborate very closely with different environment owners, uh, particularly those in the commercial sector, housing providers, employers, insurers. And that can be quite a challenge because often those sectors just don't see themselves as players uh, in this area. They see themselves as players in the economic space, but not necessarily the health space. And so that is uh, uh, something that we might be interesting to discuss today. And the second really important theme, and, and, and you spoke about this, Susie, right at the start, is how how much of this needs to be about rebalancing power, how much of this needs to be about removing barriers to those who are disproportionately affected by poor health outcomes, having a say in how services are designed, how cities are shaped too. Um, I was very pleased that in our work uh, with Tony and the team, um, some of our community researchers, so community researchers based in the boroughs where we work, um, uh, who are members of the local community, were able to work very closely with uh, uh, Tony and the team uh, in bringing different types of insights uh, to, to, to the work. Um, uh, Tony will discuss it. Um, it's looking at scenarios of what the future might look like for Lambeth and Southwark. Uh, as I say, Lambeth and Southwark are archetypal areas, so we think really what we're describing here is relevant uh, elsewhere. But the reason scenarios are so important are they paint future possibilities, what might happen. Um, and we've got an awful lot as a society within our gift to shape whether those do happen in that way or, or, or not. Um, uh, and so uh, I look forward to today's discussion about what some of those scenarios might be, but also what's within our collective gift to, um, uh, to, to try and shape them in ways that reduce, reduce health inequalities. Thanks, Kieran. Before we hand over to Tony, I would just like to take the second poll so that we mark a distinctive transition between Kieran's talk, which is much more about the, the effects of health inequalities and, and as we shift more towards Tony's part of the talk that's going to look at questions of governance. So if we could start the second poll at this point, the question is, who should be more involved in making cities healthier? A, local community groups, B, planning officials, C, health specialists, for example, the NHS, and D, schools and youth groups. So just to recap that, and I see we now have a wonderful 172 participants, so let's hear from all of you. Who should be more involved in making cities healthier? And we just wait for those poll results to come in. I hope you're all actively clicking. If we can't see you in the audience, at least we can see your, your poll sentiments. Right, so those results should be coming through any minute now. And they are up, and the results are resounding differences here. So 42% of you have signaled that you think that this should be really in the hands of local community groups. 29% advocated for planning officials, 20% for health specialists, and 9% for schools and youth groups. And I hope uh, as we move forward into this discussion, we can talk about the important intersections between all of these groups. Thanks very much, everyone. We're now going to hand over to Tony Travers. Okay, Susie, well, thank you. And um... I've enjoyed the opportunity to vote. Normally, as a panellist, you're not allowed to, so I hope I'm not skewing the results. First, uh, just uh, I'd like to re reiterate our thanks uh, to the charity and to Kieran and all his colleagues for working with us on this, and also to say the pleasure it is um, having Susie as a chair, given her work, her research in this particular area is of such importance to us all. So I'd just like to uh, add to that uh, point. Um, 
I, I've been sort of teed up nicely for today because I don't need to explain exactly what I'm going to do, which is um, to talk about the research that we did with the charity, um, had a lot of help from them. We undertook it via a mixture of classic analysis of data, uh, interviews with the community researchers, as Kieran mentioned, and also some of the uh, top ex senior executives of the major public service deliverers who gave us their time uh, graciously as well. So thank you to all of them. And the purpose of this is, I mean, we are at a most remarkable time in London and the UK and the world's history. Actually, every country in the world is affected by the pandemic. And the way in which we tackle that uh, will you know, have impacts on us all for decades to come. Um, in many ways, Lambeth and Southwark are uh, a world in a city which itself is a sort of microcosm of that world. There are people from so many different countries, some of them who came to London 50, 60, 70 years ago, some arrived yesterday, well, probably not quite, well, actually even now, yesterday. Um, and um, in that sense, this is a most remarkable area. Uh, in terms of it's one of the things we discovered in doing the work, it, the two boroughs added together are, you know, have a population larger than the city of Manchester, but in half the space, interesting way of thinking at it, or, uh, you know, it's, they're about the size of Manhattan. So we're talking about a sizable piece of city with an incredibly variegated population, which interestingly, and this is one of London's great triumphs in many ways, accidental, I suspect, uh, but something to do with its historic governance, both boroughs are uh, a mosaic of often very affluent people and quite a lot of middle income households and a large number of deprived households with a very substantial, uh, particularly in Southwark, but it's true in both boroughs, an inherited stock of social housing, which is unusual in cities like Paris and New York and certainly not, this, not so close to the city centre. So just a bit of scene setting. Given the epic nature of, and I'm not belittling it, I mean, not, 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 light, not taking it lightly, the remarkable nature of the pandemic. I think it's worth saying that nothing quite like uh, the COVID pandemic has happened to London or the UK or indeed other countries you know, since 1945. And arguably it's a public health emergency with parallels deeper in London's history. Now, London's always recovered from these things, not always instantly, but we must be broadly optimistic. But because it's very a very difficult time to make forecasts, I mean, you know, look at economic forecasters trying to work out what they think might happen next year. We thought trying to forecast the future wouldn't be sensible, though we have this remarkable uh, basis of, you know, demographic and social data, economic data, the wisdom of the community researchers and help from the chief executives and from the charity. But we thought we'd evolve four scenarios for the future. They overlap. I'm not going to go through them all in elaborate detail, but the purpose of coming up with scenarios is really to articulate the way the two boroughs and others like them in London uh, may evolve, but particularly to uh, make the point that politicians at all levels of government and indeed major companies, as Kieran says, have agency, they have decision-making power to steer one way or the other. So just very briefly, because we haven't got a lot of time, and we want to give lots of time for Q&A and discussion. So looking ahead, we started with a base case position. And for all of us, the base case position, in a sense, is January 2020, isn't it? That's the last time uh, our worlds were uh, normal-ish, uh, and, and as far as anything's ever normal. So we've used a sort of base case of the world of London and Lambeth and Southwark as they were, with all the health challenges and health inequalities that Kieran has referred to embedded part of London's and the UK's makeup. Then we looked forward and looked at four scenarios, and I'll go through them very briefly. One was a sort of booming business that after the uh, pandemic and after Brexit, that the, the UK economy picks up steam uh, and actually grows at an even faster rate than some of the fast years recently. And the consequences of that, we think, would be a big uptick in non-EU migration, and we suspect that if there's a big uptick in non-EU migration, which actually happened after 2016 to replace fewer EU migrants, many, relatively more of them would live in inner cities and in places like Lambeth and Southwark. So we'd see a, an increase in non-EU migration. 
but a greater increase in inequality and a risk that the poorer people living in the boroughs would be even further away from the median or the top. And that would have profound implications for those providing healthcare and public services. And secondly, obviously, for the people themselves, possibly in areas ever more separated from the lives of others in you know, quite close by. That was a sort of booming business scenario. Uh, another, the next one we looked at, and these are not in, 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 in sort of order particularly, was what we called the sort of inner city or inner urban decline. Now, this, in a sense, goes into a slightly different world where after the pandemic and after Brexit and structural changes to the economy, remembering that many parts of London have seen a huge increase in the claimant count, the data we've got for that since uh, the pandemic started, when furlough ends, there's going to be a significant number of additional people made un uh, becoming unemployed. This takes us into a world where there is significantly less money in terms of development, perhaps particularly in the north of the boroughs, um, a more stable future in some ways, but po possibly with no more immigration, no, no immigration from the rest of the country, and perhaps less movement altogether in and out, less transition, less movement, less in and out. And that the boroughs become perhaps slightly less affluent than they have been, possibly with the return to some of the housing problems of the 70s and 80s, which are rather different to the ones we see today. But with also the possibility that this, this creates a more stable uh, pair of boroughs in which existing shops and existing private renters, for example, are not priced out so much. Indeed, it might be easier to set up a local business and to sustain it without being pressed out by rising income, uh, rising rentals. So that's a sort of uh, a decline option. For some people, it might not be decline, but overall, it's economically substantially less growth than we've seen in recent years for, the, for London as a whole, or indeed for the UK and for the boroughs. The third option we looked at was a sort of isolationist future, which is one in which Brexit and indeed it's not only Brexit in fairness, um, you know, retreating globalisation means there's less international trade, perhaps fewer people moving around the world than, once than, than there were, but still there's some growth in the economy. And this might lead actually to Lambeth and Southwark becoming relatively, they keep all their existing migrant uh, and minority populations, but probably not growing relatively. And in fact, uh, the boroughs would become, in a sense, more like the rest of the UK in some ways over time. Um, and as a, as a result of that, it uh, would be relatively easier potential to plan, potentially to plan public services and for health providers to begin to think in more detail about the long-term needs of people who for many decades have not really had the attention that they or indeed society requires. So that's a, a more stable version, but it's still in the known world. And then our final scenario was a very different one. And in some ways, the most intriguing, certainly to me, and that is that the pandemic and you know, an accretion of 10 or 20 years of social and economic change means we come out of the pandemic and we all think slightly differently, that we have a different approach to the power of the state, the size of the state, our willingness to see the state act uh, in terms of health and in other ways, which we've definitely seen during the pandemic, but that that sticks and that we empower uh, a bigger state doing more and with a far greater interest in public health as well as just the NHS. And that could lead to, uh, and I haven't really mentioned this as much, and I should also thank my dear colleague, Ricky Burdett uh, and Alexandra, who's worked with us on this, and, and this, I think, more than the other three options, allows us to begin to think about the quality of the environment. Uh, as part of our work, we walk through various uh, neighbourhoods in both boroughs, and in fact, we all know them relatively well anyway, but with a view, and nobody knows them better than Susie, by the way, uh, with a view to uh, this option allows us to begin to think about the spaces that lie between people's homes, what the streets do, how they work for local people, and you know, with a much greater understanding of 
the built environment, these words are all a bit clunky and professional sound, but you know what I mean, our neighbourhoods, the places around where we live. And this, this scenario, I think, allows us to consider that in more detail as well. So I'll just finish there, Susie. But to reiterate what I said at the beginning, the reason we put these scenarios forward is to make, point, make the point to ministers at the national government level, the mayor and city hall, and the boroughs, both locally and others with similar issues, that they can, they can achieve the results they choose to. And that these scenarios, we could aim towards one or other of these. I mean, sadly, we're not having a vote on which scenario people would like. But had we done so, why do I think quite a lot of people would vote for scenario four? And uh, scenario four sounds comfortably attractive. But in the end, it's not uh, inimical to growth. Indeed, you could argue uh, with, with, with a greater concentration on the way our societies work you would get better growth over time for more, from more people who are better able to take part in society. So I'll leave it there simply to say politicians and indeed big companies working in these areas have choice, as do we all. And these scenarios, we hope, will prompt them to think about which they'd like. Thank you, Tony, for those provocations. I'm sure it's going to spark lots of debates uh, in the audience. What both of you have essentially brought together is how a public health crisis essentially makes visible a profound human crisis that is very much underscored by really deeply searing urban inequalities, but also a crisis of governance and, dare I say, a crisis of government. Kieran, in terms of what you pose to us, I, I found it really staggering that you could capture a sense of these real, really proximate inequalities through the scenario of two different life expectancies. To literally, you know, I mean, I, I take the, the 68 bus uh, to move between Burgess Park and Dulwich Park. It would be 15-minute journey on the bus. And to have a 20-year difference in life expectancies between those two proximate terrains is absolutely staggering. You spoke in terms of some of the redress about a rebalance of power, but um, you didn't really look at the, the aspects of governance that Tony inferred. You, you talked more about engaging a wider set of actors and agencies. And I'm curious what you think the medium for that is. What literally would that look like? It's a very, very good, very good question. Um, I don't think it's one. I don't think it's one. I think you could you could start to draw out concentric circles. So starting in a way with the the easiest ones, and it kind of will give an insight to how we work at impact on urban health. You could actually just start with different sectors or different organisations within those sectors based on where they are and how they work and saying, what is it about how you do things that you could do them differently that uh, places different people at the centre or tackles health inequality? So let me give some practical examples of that. Uh, we are working at the moment with Veolia, the refuse collection uh, uh, company, uh, around um, night shift workers and sleep patterns. Um, uh, now, sleep has all sorts of health health benefits, and poor sleep has all sorts of ill health uh, uh, risks to it. An employer speaking to uh, their employees about ways of uh, uh, working around shift patterns, uh, improving sleep, is great for the uh, employees, but it's also great for the employer. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it reduces absences, it increases employee engagement, and indeed talking about sleep gives a route to the employer to talk to their employees about other things as, as well. So that is something that's attacking a very real health inequality uh, because certain people end up disproportionately working night shifts, attacking a very real health inequality, but it's starting really just in kind of the grounds of, I guess, like that's the outer end of the uh, of the concentric circles. I'd pick up kind of uh, uh, Tony's thoughts on this, but I think as you kind of progress to the centre of that circle, I think you need to start changing where is the debate held, um, who's invited into the room, uh, and I think that does get into uh, uh, questions of governance, uh, 
Uh, as you're saying, and indeed of government and what democratic processes we uh, uh, we we have, um, uh, we might speak later about low traffic neighbor low traffic neighborhoods, um, uh, uh, which uh, I saw was kind of one of the questions questions asked. But I actually think gets into some really um, uh, important issues around whose voices. Uh, are, are, are really listened to and are really consulted on as as well. So, um, but I'd be interested in to- in Tony's thoughts on kind of how do you how do you start stepping away from kind of speaking on everybody else's kind of individual ground to reach changing the ground which we're speaking on. Thanks, Kieran. I'd like to move across to Tony. I'm curious, Tony, in terms of how you would relate your thoughts to a moment in which we have a very fragile social compact. And we could argue that that fragility has been compounded by the epidemic, but really that it was rendered fragile by by preceding processes of governance like the commitment to austerity, as well as the commitment to a kind of economic growth that has always been coupled with exacerbating inequalities. So I'm interested in this phrase that you use, the steer of the state, and I'm interested in what you think stability looks like. You, you, you spoke about a range of things from support for local businesses, uh, possibly support for affordable slash council housing, but specifically, what would a bigger state look like? And what would City Hall look like within that bigger state argument? Okay, great. Thanks, Susie. Uh, Well, I think that there's no question that we've lived through now an 11-year period in which uh, certainly the local state or parts of it have been in retreat. This was a matter of austerity, as you rightly say. Uh, Interestingly, uh, the current prime minister uh, uh, appears to have a very different view about these things and did long before the pandemic. I think he, you know, as others have observed, he's a sort of cake-and-eat-it person, and against that backdrop, um, you know, having a bigger state without having higher tax, taxes is definitely within that worldview. And indeed, the, 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 you know, the budget this week faintly, slightly headed off in that direction. Um, and I think that what we're talking about here, I think it would require somewhat more devolved power. I think that uh, with the best will in the world, um, Though national government has a role and a powerful role, particularly in terms of resource taxes collection and resource redistribution, we get more targeted policy if rather more decisions were need, made nearer to where people you know, can access those in power. I mean, you know, it's whatever we think about local authority or NHS or public health um, bosses, the ones locally you can see at a meeting, whereas the ones at the national level, wonderful though they are, you'll see on television. And that is, a, a, and I think people need to feel a sense of being able to access the people who make decisions about their lives. So I would definitely uh, wish to see uh, more devolution of power over health and public health. I'll say more about that um, to a, a subnational level, and then to areas I I think we need to get back to sort of more area-based thinking and actually with slightly uh, greater possibilities for people I want you know communities to have a sense that those who govern them are genuinely open to the the sort of the, the fears and the expectations and the hopes of people who just feel you know government rains down on them really so I think it's a matter of rethinking government but it's a more with more decision making nearer to where people live and where they have a greater chance of meeting meeting the people who make the decisions and city hall i mean city hall i think could have a significant role remembering you know that london's government at city hall level is a city of nine million people that's bigger than scotland and wales added together they've got devolved power which is closer to the people and there's lots of evidence academic evidence including from colleagues at the LSE that people trust government that's closer to them and if trust in government is an issue which it is then this is a way of starting to rebuild trust in government as well. Okay and then just before we open up for audience discussions a slight conceit but if each of you were given the power 
uh, to target one aspect of the built environment that would significantly redress profound inequalities and explicitly health inequalities, where would you start? Not an easy question, I know, but... Kieran, why don't you go first? Yeah, yeah, no, um, uh, While I talk. I'll give yeah. you some time to think while I talk. Um, I agree, not an easy question to answer. Uh, if I were to go after one thing, it would really about be about quality of housing. Um, uh, the quality of homes in which people live in contribute in very, very practical, real and entrenched ways to, to health inequalities. And that is utterly, utterly fixable uh, as, uh, as well. It's, uh, it's kind of morally wrong how poor quality housing is, not just social housing, but uh, often, but also, you know, uh, housing in the private rental sector. Um, uh, it's morally wrong, but it's also kind of economically inefficient in all sorts of ways as well. So, Susie, that's where I would, that's where I'd go. Thanks, Kieran. Oh, that's given me time to think. Thanks, Kieran. Um, I'd go for, and I won't choose that one then, um, I think public spaces, broadly mm. defined. This is not a, a massive expenditure. I mean, housing, I totally agree with Kieran, could be fixed. They require money. And we have, an, if you look at Southwark and Lambeth, have an array of different kinds of public space. They have beautiful parks. You know, they have skateboard-type uh, areas. And they have... Uh, you know, uh, housing estates and spaces within social housing estates, which with for modest amounts of money could be made much nicer places to spend time. And many people who live in Lambeth and Southwark, particularly in social housing or in rented housing, are not going to be able to sell up and move to a castle in Kent or whatever uh, oddities we hear might be going on out there. So I think, you know, making the ensuring that people who run local government have a sense of what things look like and then spending money and having the resources to make the physical environment that people see look good so that they, in turn, people will feel that they like to spend time there uh, summer and winter. Fantastic. Okay, so now we're going to open up to our audience. I have a couple of questions lined up. Our first question is from James McDade, who's a master's student at the LSE, and he asks us, what are the speaker's views on low traffic neighbourhoods in London uh, in terms of improving urban health? I'm going to, to take on two questions at once. So while you have a chance to think a little bit about that one, we have another question from Mark Sansom, Healthy City Design Congress who says Nigel Crisp's new book, Health is Made at Home, Hospitals are for Repairs, calls for a focus on health creation to support human flourishing in communities, schools, housing, the workplace, and urban planning. How do we both ensure health in all policies and all ministries and create a culture of health and wellness in wider society? Okay, let's go with those two questions and then I'll pose another two to you when you've when you've had a chance to attend to those. Tony, would you like to start? Sure. Um, well, on the low traffic uh, neighborhoods front, there's no I mean, as it happens, while we were undertaking this work, the uh, case of Ella Adu Kissi Deborah was uh, in the media. She's actually, I think she lived in Lewisham on the South Circular Road, but we're talking about the same broad neighbourhood here. So, you know, that was the first time a British, I think it's, I'm right in saying, first time a British court had observed that pollution could, rather than the generalised number of death statistics, but an individual had been affected by uh, road pollution. So I think we now, we're sort of headed in, in a better direction, well, Sadly, it's taken her death, but it will have an impact on the way uh, government thinks. So I think we're all in, we can all be in favour of low traffic neighbourhoods. All I'd say is we need to be careful that they don't displace traffic. I mean, one of the problems with the said South Circular Road or any road like it um, is that, you know, if everybody that traffic in the end has to go somewhere, there will always be deliveries and buses and other things that we can't get rid of. And there's always a risk that 
um, major roads end up with all the traffic on them. And, you know, I'm often surprised how much planning has allowed how many institutions full of young people, including social housing estates and schools and hospitals, to be along long polluted roads. So, you know, I think we need to make sure we don't displace traffic on so that some people suffer more. And there's been some allegation that that's already happened. And secondly, on the low traffic neighbourhoods front, I think we do have to think very hard indeed about what, you know, the big roads in London, then how they are made less polluting. And we can't just wait for electric vehicles. We've got to do something before that. And, you know, I'm amazed how underpowered, given, you know, that all the EU and other rules that there have been about how and how badly some roads uh, in, London, in London fail. We've not had more done about the not low traffic, not the, the non-low traffic neighbourhood roads. So I think we need to think about them as well. So I'm in favour of them, but not displacement. And as the, the Nigel Crisp uh, question, I mean, I'll just say rather more rapidly on this occasion, I think that we've long, long before COVID, perhaps overspent on the health service and underspent on public health. The ratio of spending on public health before COVID was 4 billion on public health, 120 billion on the NHS. I think 8 billion on public health and 116 billion, if we have to be stuck with the same total, would have been a better way. I think there are massive, and I know charity is working on this, we were talking about this before we started, massive interventions in terms of individuals' public health, through public health, uh, campaigns and public health interventions that could radically reduce the life the life expectancy expectancy uh, numbers that you were referring to, Susie. Mm -hmm. Great, great questions on the on, on the low traffic neighbourhoods. Um, we've been uh, as a charity working with Southwark Council uh, on on testing. Um, some low traffic neighbourhoods um, uh, and there were three principles that really informed it so the first was making sure to your point Tony that they were based in areas of real need so we were looking at those areas with highest levels of air pollution but also highest levels of childhood obesity so the most obesogenic environments frankly they exactly overlap um, uh, secondly we were doing it in a way that contributes to an evidence base. So I think there is a surprising lack of evidence around whether low traffic neighbourhoods work or not. Now, my instinct is, yes, they will. Um, but, but we don't know that. We don't know that. Uh, and so in our work, we've tried to set them up against a control as well. The third one, probably the most important to some of the points that you've been talking about, Susie, is that we, we really had to catch ourselves on how inclusive the process was being and how we were getting more community feedback, community feedback within it. And it's, I think it's such an important point. So Tony, the, some of the latest evidence shows that uh, low traffic neighborhoods, when they've been rolled out across London, have not disproportionately been in the wealthier areas. In fact, they've, it looks like they've fairly equally been across wealthy areas and not so wealthy areas. And everybody's been rushing to say that that's an equitable outcome. And I'm just, I, I'm not qu quite so quick to get there because I don't think actually that communities have been equitably involved in the decisions around where low traffic neighbourhoods are. And that really matters for how people engage with them, understand them, what support they have, whether it seems to be helping people or getting in the way of life. Uh, and so I think it really, really does matter, Susie, to the point that you were kind of talking about there of how are we engaging people? And people are there to be engaged. Um, uh, uh, it's that statutory services aren't reaching them, um, aren't hearing, hearing their voices, aren't going to them in the right sorts of ways. And to Mark's question, um, it's a good question, Mark. I mean, um, if I was being uncharitable, Nigel Chris's book is fantastic. If I was being uncharitable, I'd ask, why is it always when people leave these positions of heading up things like the NHS that they start making start making these points? Um, my concern about health and all policies, just to be a little bit punchy, is that it very quickly becomes health and none. Um, we need to be much more articulate about uh, the ways in which economic success is driven by health 
social integration is driven by health. Uh, so uh, I would always kind of turn it around rather than saying health in all policies is that in some ways all policies need to lead to health. Um, what we can do about that is, you know, organisations like mine and others can show ways in which other actors can contribute to health. Perhaps one thing that we could speak about uh, later is about the role, though, of effective regulation um, uh, in this. And really just kind of how do you get a, a, a race to the top um, uh, around all sorts of things? So perhaps talking about food environments could be one of them. Great. Thank you. We have a, a question from Gary Belkin, who asks us, and I think correctly asks us, why are three white people talking about how local conditions and knowledge drive the lives and health of brown and black people? I know these neighborhoods and there is deep local expertise on all these issues and best solutions. And perhaps to come in here, I think um, both of you have spoken a lot about how we might listen differently but of course, within that, there's the question as well of, of who gets to speak and how we might think of that differently. Um, I would point the audience in terms of a, a more national context to Baroness Lawrence's extraordinary piece of work, An Avoidable Crisis, which is not only about the profoundly racialized and minoritized effects of the pandemic, but it also does engage a, a methodology of, of listening and speaking with as well as James Nazaru's extraordinary work at the Centre on Dynamics of Ethnicity. But uh, I, I will include another question, but just to let you think a little bit about this, Tony and Kieran, uh, um, as you go forward in your work, I know you've both engaged in processes of listening, but how might you engage in, in uh, more representative processes of speaking? And then we have a question from Valentina, from the Forum for the Future. And she says, as all of the scenarios will emerge in part rather than solely one or the other, what were the commonalities that were present in each of the four scenarios which would suggest that it might be a, a likely or important area to focus on? Um, and I will pause. We have another two questions coming into the mix, but I will pause those and give you a chance to, to answer those two. Kieran, do you want to start first? Yeah, no, it's, 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 um, it's a really good question for Gary. I'm, I'm not sure you totally got my ethnicity correct there, Gary, but, um, but it's, um, there's a deeper point to that, which I, which I think is very fair, which is, uh, as you're saying, kind of whose voices are being, being, being heard. In our work at the charity, this is something that we're more deeply engaging in and like many organizations got very much further to go one of the most effective routes that we've uh, we've found has been in engaging with i spoke about them briefly earlier some community re researchers so we've been working with an organization called the social innovation partnership who's been connecting us to uh, researchers based in community who have a cultural understanding, a cultural nuance, know the places, know the people, know the experiences, to be able to, to, be able to draw out insights that otherwise would be hidden to us. Um, roles that organisations like mine can play can be to connect those insights to people in different positions. So I'll give you a very practical example of that. Um, uh, there's an awful lot of interest in vaccine hesitancy at the moment amongst certain certain communities. Um, what our work with the community researchers has shown us is that the more important question is about vaccine knowledge. What are trusted sources of information? Where are they? And how can, uh, uh, how can people access uh, sources of information that are trusted to them, particularly when there uh, might be very high levels of distrust, not just in government, but in places that are used to feeling trusted, like the, the NHS. So I think it's a, it's a good and profound question, Gary. Um, uh, and that's how the sorts of ways that we as an organisation uh, are trying to get into that. Um, on the commonalities across the scenarios uh, question, I think the one that really stood out to me, uh, uh, I'd be interested in Tony's thoughts as well. The one that really stood out to me was in how many of these scenarios, health inequalities, 
remained the same or got worse, which I think just shows that these are deep and systemic things that are causing them uh, 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 at the uh, at the moment. And so it needs a lot of it is not about any one solution, but kind of a, a change in mindset. Uh, and that was probably the fourth scenario that Tony painted was a change in mindset. And perhaps that kind of shows just how critical that change in mindset is to tackling the, the inequalities that we're discussing. Thanks. Okay. Just to add on, on both points briefly, I mean, you're, I mean, it's a fair point about representativeness. And that's why we were uh, lucky, well, not lucky, um, privileged to have access to the charities. Um, community researchers who I think uh, Kieran will nod or shake his head accordingly at this moment were precisely exist precisely to act as a link between the very many often quite different uh, difficult to reach communities behind doors or out on the streets in both boroughs and classic academic researchers. And again, Susie knows more about this issue th th than either Kieran or me, to be honest. So we're kind of alert to this problem that thinking through to other people's lives is uh, an element in this kind of research. And certainly the more anthropological it gets, you have to do that. But, you know, would I say that we could represent all the diverse populations of these areas? Of course not. Did we make an effort sensitively to think our ways into the lives of the people we were you know, meeting and seeing out on the streets? And with the help of the community researchers, we did our best, is all I can say. On the um, commonalities and the scenarios, I think, uh, A, Kieran's right. I mean, the, they all pointed to a need to find a way in which I mean, the, the curiosity of health provision and public health provision is it has no enemies. It's, you know, most the NHS is trusted. Public health is thought to be a good thing. Council and people may be suspicion, suspicious of councils and councillors, but they're less so than of MPs. Not a very high bar. But um, and so most of the, the state is broadly trying to be benign and it's got substantial resources. The question for me is how does all that you know, the way people think about health provision and public health and the benign nature of the state, how does it sort of over the long term fail to reach so many people and understand their needs? And I think we are back to the an issue of sort of cultural, and I mean cultural in a very wide sense, cultural disconnect, you know, that trying to deliver anything for people who isn't, isn't who people who aren't you is always going to be difficult. And the people at the top of institutions do have different lives to many people who live in Southwark and Lambeth. I'm not critical. I do, too. Um, then other similarities between the scenarios where investment goes. There will be investment in Lambeth and Southwark. The question is, where does it go and who does it benefit? That's one com uh, commonality. Another one is how to, you know, local businesses. How do we ensure that local people of the communities discussed you know, their businesses can thrive and survive and grow in the way they want to, and they don't all get priced out, which is a, a, a major, and I think that's true. And that will be very important in terms of generating local employment after the pandemic. And last but not least, quality of place, which I've mentioned before. Ricky Badet is, you know, our guide on all of this. But the truth is, they all have within them, what does the place feel like and what's it like to live in it? And how can we make it better? And that's it for me. Great. So we're going to close with two essential questions. They really are both around the question of reiterating the requirement for a secure home, not only as a matter of materiality, but as essentially a matter of tenancy and as a public good. So we have from Adia Kanodia, an economic student at the University of Bath, the question, in terms of healthcare access in inner cities, Homelessness is usually over, is usually shadowed or hidden. People who have been homeless tend to have a lower life expectancy, regardless of location. What is your view on this? And do you believe that if urban health policy focus is shifted to this, there would be opportunities for greater positive change in the medium term? And then we have a question from the wonderful Professor Paul Watt at Birkbeck 
who says, my research suggests that housing deprivation and dispossession, example, overcrowding, poor housing conditions, homelessness, evictions, plays a major role in health inequalities. These are long-term issues. What do the panel think? Um, Tony, would you like to go first on this one? Sorry. Um, I mean, it's both housing related questions. Um, I mean, in a sense, Paul Watts, uh, what, by the way, I should congratulate Birkbeck, who just built an excellent new building opposite my home, which I like enormously. Um, but seriously, um, I mean, what, your question elegantly describes a long term issue affecting housing in London. And I mean, the answer in some ways is yes, you know, housing deprivation and dispossession, overcrowding, poor housing conditions do play a major role in health inequalities. And it's amazing, although every, you know, not every battle is lost over time in terms of housing quality. I mean, there's no doubt that Lambeth and many, for many people living in Lambeth and Southwark today, housing is better than it was in the 60s and 70s and early 80s. However, everybody else's housing is getting better faster, many, certainly many owner occupiers. So it's an unwon struggle, an, un, an unfinished struggle. And as Kieran said earlier, I think uh, in a sense it needs continuous targeting of resources from most of it's going to come from national government uh, to the local level um, and then used effectively locally. Uh, but it has to be consistent, not stopping and starting and stopping and starting with a, a strong sense of what the policy is designed to achieve. But Paul, you all know more about that than I do. And on, on, related to that, uh, the homelessness question. Uh, and particularly, I mean, homelessness is often seen as street homelessness. But I think this question is more about the generic and often invisible homelessness that is, exists. And, you know, in a sense, going back to what I've just said in response to the, early, the other question, um, I think London has, ne has never, ever as well, solved the housing crisis and may never do so. I mean, even in the 70s, when, you know, at one point there were more housing units than there were households in London, there was still a massive uh, ill distribution of housing and, and good housing. So that's a kind of generic problem. But I think we just have to keep government uh, government's um, concern bearing down on it. I think 18 or 19 housing, 19 housing ministers since 1997, this is not a good sign. So we just need to get government consistently interested in providing the resources for boroughs and other agencies to tackle problems to do with housing and homelessness. Thanks, Kieran. We have a, a couple of minutes to go. If you could give us a, a brief response, that would be great. Yeah, great. So, uh, yes, agreed on homelessness and a, a good point, very well made there. Um, focusing on housing, the very brief point I would make is that we also need to understand housing in a web of how people's financial health impacts on their physical and mental health, but also impacts on things like ability to hold down a job. Um, and these are often kind of cyclical things. One very practical project that, that we're doing with partners at the moment is working with local GPs to spot people who have long-term health conditions who are most at risk of being evicted from their homes, to find those people and to give them breathing space from uh, uh, from landlords or housing associations um, if they're having uh, uh, difficulties uh, paying paying their rent. That is a health intervention there. And I think as a country, the more that we can start to understand that sort of thing is health, uh, uh, a health intervention as much as, you know, a drug uh, or other things is, then, then, then we'll be pointing in the right direction. Thank you very much. And thank you to the audience for those questions. In sum then, our discussion today has very much been about the relationship between a volatile social and political context uh, that then maps onto profoundly unequal health outcomes. Kieran spoke very much about the concentric circles of responsibility that engage with where the debate is held and who participates. And Tony referred importantly to the questions of more devolved power for more targeted policies 
in the hope that these reach people's lives in much more tangible and effective ways. The underlying substance uh, of the discussion is really about the enduring issue of the secure quality of housing as an essential public good, as well as the regard for an array of public spaces, particularly those spaces that are close to home. And I think also across questions that were raised, the importance not only of grounded knowledge, but grounded advocacy. It's been a great pleasure to have this discussion with Kieran and Tony today, and thank you to all of you for taking part. We're grateful that you could be with us today, and I hope you all go on to enjoy your lockdown weekends. Please make sure you check out the festival program and watch recordings of the live and pre-recorded events that have taken place this week. Thank you, all of you.